at the beginning of the 20th century, Baptist minister E.W. Kenyon laid the foundation for what would later become Pentecostalism and the Word of Faith movement. He taught that all believers are entitled to physical healing as a divine right, which they receive through positive confession. This entitlement traces back to the atonement. Kenyon believed that Jesus procured healing for believers in his substitutionary atonement. This atonement was meant not just to deal with sin, but also the curses of sickness and poverty. These beliefs dovetailed right into the emergence of Pentecostalism. The largest Pentecostal denomination, Assemblies of God, teaches this in its statement of fundamental truth. Quote, divine healing is an integral part of the gospel. Deliverance from sickness is provided for in the atonement and is the privilege of all believers, end quote. In a fascinating and novel manner, healing had become a gospel issue, directly tied to the atonement. Later, Oral Roberts came. He was a trailblazing faith healer. He stated this, quote, If Jesus took our sicknesses, we need not bear them any longer. Sickness is part of the curse, and Jesus came to destroy the curse. He suffered in our stead because he did not want us to suffer disease. He took our specific diseases and infirmities upon his own sinless, perfect body in complete payment for the penalty of sin, end quote. Hearing this, you might get the impression that on the cross, Jesus didn't just die as a substitute for sin, but as a substitute for sickness. And that is precisely what they teach. Gloria Copeland, or Copeland rather, clarifies this when she writes, quote, Jesus bore your sickness and carried your diseases at the same time and in the same manner that he bore your sins. You are just as free from sickness and disease as you are free from sin, end quote. All Christians understand Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, and they're happy to let people know that forgiveness is promised to those who believe. While many Pentecostals and Charismatics likewise teach that healing is just as promised as forgiveness for those who believe. Just as we no longer need to bear guilt and shame, Through the cross, so we no longer need to bear sickness or disease. Healing is guaranteed for all those who exercise faith. All a believer has to do to receive this healing, as it's often said, is name it and claim it. Now, when you study the teaching of Pentecostalism all the way through today's Word of Faith movement, interestingly, one verse keeps showing up. That would be Matthew chapter 8, verse 17 which does indeed say Jesus carried away our diseases. This verse shows up again and again in their teaching as they try and link the promise of physical healing to the atonement. Is that the case? Are the two related? What does the Bible mean when it says Jesus carried away our diseases? Millions of people subscribe to some branch of Pentecostalism worldwide Do they know something we don't know? Should we expect physical healing because of the cross? This topic is apropos precisely because we just so happen to be going through Matthew's gospel. And we just so happen to have arrived at this proof text, Matthew 8.17. This verse comes right after a miracle account where Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law who was laid out sick with a fever. And ironically, a couple weeks ago, I was prevented from finishing 
this passage or preaching through this passage by a little bit of my own sickness. But that, in another stroke of God's providence, has afforded us more time and opportunity to dive deeper into this issue, something we've never explored before, namely the relationship between healing and the atonement. Whether we get the flu or diabetes or cancer, should we expect healing in this life because of what Jesus did on the cross? We're back this week to finish up this passage and answer some of these questions. And so with that in mind, if you haven't already, you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. The text was chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Last time, we covered verses 14 and 15, which record the third healing account in this chapter. Matthew has shown us Jesus healing a leper, a centurion, a Gentile, and then a woman. Three classes of outcasts in Israel. But all those who come to him, meek, humble, poor in spirit, will find his mercy no matter their class or background. The healing of Peter's mother-in-law that day, it was just the tip of the iceberg. Word spread, and later that evening, the whole town shows up at their doorstep looking for healing. All these people were desperate, suffering from all manner of physical affliction. No medicine, no hospitals, no hope. Jesus gave them hope, and more than hope, he gave them healing. So it says in verse 16, as we went through, It says, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. That verse, just by itself, is profound as we see further evidence of the power and authority of Jesus over all things. But this passage stands out for another reason. There are many accounts of Jesus healing in the Gospels, but here we get a little bit of Matthew's own commentary when it comes to the purpose of Christ's healing ministry. That comes in verse 17, the connection. He says right after, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now you read that verse on the surface. may not seem like much. This is another instance of Jesus fulfilling prophecy. He healed people because it was foreseen for him to do so. Great. That is true, and that's not to be taken for granted. But this verse is more significant than that. I set this issue up last week, but since we're going to do a a deep dive this morning, I'd better set it up again. The issue stems from, from Matthew's quotation here of Isaiah 53, the most notable messianic prophecy in the whole Old Testament. So you can Keep a bookmark in Matthew and turn back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is one of the servant songs of Isaiah, which depict Israel's Messiah as God's servant. But things take a turn in Isaiah 53 as we learn that this figure will be a suffering servant. Verse 3, he'll be despised, forsaken, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. This Messiah will be rejected and made to suffer. We wonder, like, why? For what? What's he going to suffer for? The answer is sin. It's clear throughout the whole chapter. Verse 5, he suffers for transgressions. Verse 6, for iniquity. Verses 7 and 8, he's oppressed and afflicted like a lamb led to slaughter for transgression. Verse 10, he's a guilt offering. Verse 11, he bears iniquities. 
Verse 12, he bears sins. This Messiah will be made to suffer for sin. But it's equally clear this servant is not suffering for his own sin, but rather the sins of the people. He he doesn't have sin. We do. That's why he's suffering. So verse 5, it says he's pierced through for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 8, he's cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of the people. Verse 11, he justifies the many as he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he himself bore the sin of many. You can see Isaiah 53 is just a cascade of verses on the substitutionary nature of the Messiah's death. But now here's the question. How is Matthew connecting Isaiah 53 with Christ's healing ministry? Because that is what he's doing. Back in Matthew 8, verse 16, it ends with this summary statement. Jesus healed all who were ill. And then verse 17, it begins with this purpose clause in the Greek, indicating why Jesus healed. And Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah. So in the mind of Matthew, as Jesus healed people, he was fulfilling Isaiah 53. But if you were listening, that should strike you as a little odd. Like, wait a second. Because when you read Isaiah 53, it does not appear to be talking about the healing ministry of the Messiah at all. It's clearly talking about the atoning work of the Messiah, not the healing work of the Messiah. So what gives? Are the two connected? Is Matthew trying to tell us that on the cross, Jesus as the suffering servant was literally carrying away our diseases? That he secured our physical healing in the atonement. Are the faith healers right? Should we expect good health in following Jesus? And if not, what is is Matthew trying to tell us? In the mind of Matthew, what is the point of contact between healing and the atonement? And what are the implications for us today? That's what we're trying to figure out. That's our main question. So we're back this morning to take a little deeper dive into this text. And try and figure out what is the relationship between healing and the atonement. And what does it mean for us today? So obviously this is going to be a different type of a sermon. This will be a little bit more like a a theological study. But from time to time we, we need to do this. These are big important questions. They take a little work, some Bible study to figure out. But they have huge implications for life today. So we need to do this. We have a lot of ground to cover. So I want to guide you through this study that you can see for yourselves the answers to these questions. So to help with that, just give some organization. Let's take seven steps to help you understand the relationship between healing and the atonement and its implications for today. Seven steps just to help you understand the relationship between healing and the atonement. All right, step one. These are a little bit wordy, but establish that Matthew believes Jesus came to make atonement for sins. And you first establish that Matthew believes Jesus came to make atonement for sins. Just real quick, first things first, we just need to prove that, that Matthew does not have some different view of the atonement. Some way out of left field view of the atonement. Rather, no, he believes that Jesus is 
that suffering servant from Isaiah 53, who came above all to make atonement for our sins. Does Matthew believe that? Yes. This is clear from the beginning of Matthew's gospel mentioned this morning. His gospel begins with the birth of Jesus, and he's sure to include the purpose of the Messiah's coming. The angel appears to Joseph and tells him about this child who will be Emmanuel, God with us. And why is he coming? Why is this child coming? Matthew one twenty one explains to save his people from their sins. That's why he's named Jesus. The name Jesus means the Lord is salvation. He's come not to save his people from sickness. He's come to save them from sin. This is equally clear at the end of Matthew's gospel. Think about the Lord's Supper, where the night before his death, he takes that Passover cup, he redefines it, gives it new meaning in light of his impending death. And so what is the purpose of this coming death? Matthew 26, verse 28, Christ explains, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. You see how Jesus himself draws a straight line between his death on the cross and our healing? No, our forgiveness of sins. We don't have to labor this point. There are plenty more examples, but just quickly wanted to show that Matthew is not trying to teach some alternate view of the atonement. He understands that the primary purpose of the Messiah's coming was, was not to give us healing in this life, but to die and pay for our sins. Just like Isaiah 53 says. All right, that's going to get that out of the way. Let's move on to step two and get going here. Step two, examine exactly how Matthew references Isaiah 53. What's behind this quote? Examine exactly how Matthew references Isaiah 53. He says he's fulfilling this. In what way is he fulfilling Isaiah 53? Whenever Matthew uses this word fulfill, you should pay attention. This is a motif in Matthew the Greek word plerao, fulfill, uses it often as Matthew frequently shows us how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation. But that fulfillment is not one size fits all. It is varied. Sometimes Matthew shows us literal fulfillment, other times figurative, sometimes analogical There are many different ways the Old Testament points to Jesus. So, how does Matthew see fulfillment here in Matthew 8? Is he being figurative? Is he trying to make some illustrative connection to Isaiah 53? Is he outright reinterpreting Isaiah 53 and making it refer to physical healing? Well, no, I actually believe Matthew is finding literal fulfillment here. And for you to see that, you've got to go back to Isaiah 53. So if you're still there, you know, what is the overall picture of salvation the Savior brings us in this chapter, Isaiah 53? Yes, clearly that the primary focus is on delivering us from sin, but that's not actually the exclusive focus. There are several Hebrew terms here referring to our overall well-being. Like verse 5 says, the chastening for our well-being fell on him. That term for well-being in Hebrew is shalom, peace. It's how the Hebrews referred to our, our overall state of being. And it says at the end of that verse, by his scourging, we are healed. 
And that is a term for physical health. And then you have verse 4, which is the verse in question because that's what Matthew references. You see the two key nouns, griefs and sorrows. You might have a marginal note in your Bible indicating that these terms can also be translated sicknesses and pains. And that's true, that term for griefs, that term is 12 times in the Old Testament translated as sickness, seven times translated as disease, only four times translated as griefs. Just showing you that illness is certainly within the range of meaning of this word, griefs. It's actually the dominant meaning. Same goes for that word for sorrows. It can refer to physical pain just as much as heartbreak. So you can definitely argue here that while the Messiah predominantly comes to deal with our sins, he doesn't leave out our sickness. The two are related, as we'll see shortly. Even in Isaiah 53, they actually seem related. So verse 4 says the Messiah, our griefs he himself bore. That verb for bore, that same one is used down in verse 12, only in reference to sin. Verse 12, he bore the sins of many. Same word. Also, verse 4 says, our sorrows he carried. That same verb for carried is used down in verse 11, only with reference to sin. Verse 11, he will bear their iniquities. In Hebrew, that's the same word for carried. And so the point so far is this, in Isaiah 53, the substitutionary work of the Messiah definitely has in mind, above all, our spiritual condition, namely our sins before God. But it does make a few references to our physical condition, our our well-being. It's safe to say that, that God cares about both body, soul, so that shouldn't surprise us. Now, look, we're dealing with prophecy here, which contains kernels of truth in shadow form. But there's enough to suggest that in Isaiah, this servant would make us right with God in more ways than one. As he deals with the problem of sin, he would deal with the effects of sin. And don't you think that would have a bearing on our physical condition? Seems like it should. And this, I believe, is what Matthew is picking up on. When Matthew quotes verse 4 in Matthew 8, 17, he chooses Greek words that definitely refer to sickness. Matthew 8, 17 says, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. That's Matthew's own translation of the Hebrew. But he's not butchering Isaiah 53, 4. For Matthew to see this verse as the Messiah dealing with our physical condition, and it's well within the range of meaning of these words, I believe Matthew is picking up on these kernels of truth in Isaiah 53 and bringing them to the forefront. We can say that that both Matthew and Isaiah see the Messiah coming to be a substitute for sins. But in some way, that work does connect to our physical well-being. How? Well, let's keep going. Step three. Consider the bigger picture of our sin problem. I think it'll be helped by this. Consider the bigger picture of our sin problem. Don't have too narrow a view of our sin problem before God. Again, Matthew 121, G 
Jesus came to save his people from their sins. What does this salvation entail? Well, ask, what is the extent of our sin problem? You might think our problem is, is merely our sinful deeds. We've done all these bad things. We've, we've accrued this record book of sins. But good news, Jesus came. He paid for them all. He wiped that record clean. So now we're good to go, right? That is very good news. But understand that our sin problem extends beyond the guilt of our sin. You need to think of man's sin problem more holistically. And in that sense, our problem is not just our sins, but it includes all the consequences of those sins, right? What consequences? Well, how about corruption and death? And think back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sin, they disobey God. That's when the sin problem begins. But with this sin problem, we're really talking about all the effects, all the consequences of sin. That's what needs to be rectified for us to be saved. So, so what were the consequences of their sin? There were some spiritual consequences to be sure. I mean, they suffered guilt and shame as they rebelled against God. That's why they hid from him. They also suffered separation from God. He is holy. They were no longer holy. So they had to be removed from the glory of his presence in the garden. That was an outward depiction of the spiritual separation that took place on that day. In short, the spiritual consequences of their sin was spiritual death. They were cut off from God. That's why Ephesians 2.1 says, we all are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's a big problem. That's not the only dimension of our sin problem. There were other consequences. There was also a physical dimension in the form of God's curse. Genesis 3, 17 through 19, God issued a curse for man's sin. That curse first extended to the ground. God cursed the earth itself. He said, thorns and thistles, it will grow. God changed the condition of the planet. It would now be a hostile environment to mankind. And what had no place in God's original very good creation would now come to be. Things like fires and floods, earthquakes, tornadoes, also viruses, diseases, illnesses. And all these would make man suffer greatly. But the greatest curse of all came next And that is the curse of death. A man came from the dust and God said, you're going to go back to the dust. You will return to the dust. As a mercy, man would not suffer physical death right away. God would give them time to repent and find him. But all would pass through that first death and the road there usually is rather painful. And ever since, this world has been completely scarred by that curse. We see human suffering all around us. Every one of you has seen it. And in a little while, just give it some time, every one of you will experience it. And it's all because of sin. Now, no, I'm not saying all sickness is directly tied to your personal sin. The Bible doesn't teach that. That's what some Jews believed in Christ's day. Jesus himself refutes that 
in John chapter 9, the disciples see this man who had been born blind. And they ask Jesus, hey, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born this way? They're suffering so much. They believe someone's to blame. And Christ answered, neither. It is not the case that every time you get sick, it's because you sinned. However, the Bible teaches all sickness as a category, all disease, all disaster, all death, indirectly comes from sin. These are all the consequences of man's first sin, our sinful condition, and the curse. Creation is cursed. Our bodies are cursed. This too is part of our sin problem, right? So when Isaiah, for example, when he depicts the sin problem from which the Messiah will save us, it would actually be more surprising if he said nothing of our physical condition, as if God's redemption would only extend to our souls and just leave out our bodies. It was God who made us two parts, body, soul. Both are fallen and cursed under death. Both need to be redeemed. Indeed, the Savior would come with respect to both. He came to redeem us entirely, addressing both our spiritual condition and our physical condition. How would he do that? Well, now that you have a a bigger understanding of the sin problem, maybe let's add a bigger understanding of the sin solution. That's step four. Step four, consider the bigger picture of the sin solution. This Jesus came to save his people from their sins. I mean, I sure hope that includes all the physical consequences of sin. Don't you? If both our body and soul are cursed under death and fallen, I hope both get redeemed in Christ. And thankfully they do. Why don't you flip over to Romans chapter 5. You can leave Isaiah now and go over to Romans chapter 5. In Romans 5, Paul presents the clearest contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam. Adam and Jesus. And just want you to pay attention to the dichotomy Paul brings out. This is just a survey. We don't have a lot of time here, but I want you to notice how in Adam that the curse of death spread to all. Just briefly, at Romans 5, verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Drop down to verse 17, the beginning, he adds, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. That is what happened. Just by one sin, Adam's one sin, it introduced death into the world, and death took over. Death has reigned ever since. That reign produces things like sickness and disease. But then Jesus came. Notice the contrast, verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And drop down verse 21. He says near the bottom as, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through Jesus Christ to eternal life, or rather through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, 
our Lord. So what he's saying, in Adam, since Adam, death reigned. But now in Christ, grace reigns unto life. That Christ's redemption is the answer to death. That includes spiritual death and physical death. He replaces both with life, eternal life. That's what he came to bring us. What is this eternal life? It's not just a quantity of life. It it is also a quality of life. It is life fully restored and reconciled to God in all dimensions. This entails a reversal of the curse with all its effects. Galatians 3.13, Jesus became a curse for us that he might deal with the manifold consequences of sin on our behalf. So what does that include? That includes new souls, new spirits. Our spiritual death would be undone as he would make us born again. That's like the promise in Ezekiel 36, 26, where God says, I will give you new hearts. I will put a new spirit within you. So part of what we get is a new spirit. This also includes, though, this holistic redemption. It includes new bodies, resurrected bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul picks up this contrast between Adam and Christ. Adam is the earthy, he says. Christ is the heavenly. Then he says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 49. He says, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Just as Jesus rose from the dead and was glorified, so will we. We too will be glorified. For us, that means new resurrected bodies. He says in that chapter, our body is sown perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. 1 Corinthians 15, 42, 43. And, and this is part of the hope we have, right? We desire from the Lord forgiveness of sins, of course, chiefly. But we also desire freedom from death and all things related to it, like sickness and disease. We desire eternal life. That is what he gives us through his work by his grace. It includes new souls, new bodies. It even includes a new environment, a new heavens and a new earth. Here in Romans 5, just go to Romans 8. Romans 8, Paul personifies creation itself. He says creation is longing, it's groaning, waiting for God's plan of redemption to be finished. Why? Because that's when God will finally lift the curse and remake the world. And so he says this, Romans 8, 20 through 22. He says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. He pictures all creation suffering under the curse, waiting for redemption. Won't be forever. God will make a new heavens and a new earth. That new environment 
will feature God and man perfectly reconciled again forever. It will also feature this. Revelation 21 verse 4. It says Christ will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. In that place, there will be no more disease or sickness. No more broken bones or flu seasons. No more hurricanes or blurry vision. All things wrong with our bodies, our souls, and even the world are made right forever. And so I hope you you see some of the, the bigger picture to Christ's redemption, his redemptive work. He came not just for our souls, but for us. That includes our souls and our bodies, even the world. Colossians chapter one reminds us that this Christ is overall. It tells us that he made all things in heaven and on earth, and he will restore all things. It says in Colossians 1.20 that it was God the Father's will to do what? Through Jesus. Colossians 1.20, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. You see that? that that's a verse directly tying Christ's redemptive work on the cross to the reconciliation of all things, physical and spiritual. The scope of Christ's redemptive work, maybe it's just bigger than you thought. Every blessing we receive in this life and the next can be linked to his redemptive work. All right, I think we've laid sufficient groundwork that we, we've seen holistically that the sin problem and also the sin solution, both of which are touched on in Isaiah 53. I think now we're finally ready to, to more precisely connect those dots between Christ's work and our healing before we talk about implications. So step five, you might say that the main step, clarify the relationship between healing and the atonement. Let's clarify now the relationship between healing and the atonement. Does the work of Christ on the cross relate to our healing, the restoration of our physical condition? Yes, we've already seen how Jesus came to redeem us, body and soul. But what is the exact relationship between healing and the atonement? Here is where we we do have to take issue with the teaching of some Pentecostals and faith healers. Because as we read earlier, Some claim that Jesus bore our diseases in the same manner as he bore our sins. Just as Jesus was made sin on our behalf, they would teach that he was made sickness on our behalf. But that is incorrect. Isaiah 53 and elsewhere teach that Jesus suffered vicariously for sin. The Bible never teaches that Jesus suffered vicariously for sickness. Sickness carries no guilt before God. Sickness does not require atonement. Sickness is part of our overall problem, right? But it's not our main problem. We established it's, it's a consequence of our sin problem. In addition, nowhere does the Bible suggest Jesus literally bore our diseases, which is what they teach. 
You know, when Jesus healed the leper, he did not get leprosy. He does not take cancer onto himself. He does not actually get sick in our place. Many faith healers, they're just not careful with their statements or their Bible study. Instead, just think cause and effect. We've learned that sin is the cause and sickness is the effect or the consequence of sin. Not always directly, but indirectly, all disaster, all disease, all death goes back to man's sinful condition. Jesus came to redeem and restore us. He did that by dealing with the root of the problem. And what is the root of the problem? It was the guilt of sin. The essence of our problem before God, it's not physical. Yeah, we are two parts, but our main problem is not physical. It is spiritual. It's rebellion against God and the guilt incurred by our sin. And this is why scripture everywhere teaches that Jesus came primarily to make atonement for our sins, that we might be justified by faith. You know, in 1 Peter 2.24, did you know that he also quotes and references Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, same verses. But Peter draws out the connection, the greater connection between Jesus dying for our sins and our spiritual healing. 1 Peter 2.24 says that he himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. Here, Peter is not talking about physical healing, but our spiritual reconciliation to God. And there's countless verses just like this. But now, here's the connection to our physical healing. Once the root of the problem is solved, the effects will be solved as well. The consequences will be solved as well. If you're walking along and you just get a huge splinter in your foot, I mean, it would hurt terribly. That happened to me once when I was a little kid. It was a massive splinter. It's more like a, it's a shard. <laughs> Painkillers, they kind of numb the pain, but they don't solve it because the cause is still in place. Only once, uh, not until you remove the cause, namely you get the splinter out, do you deal with the effect, that would be the pain. And it might take some time after that, but at least now healing can begin. This is not unlike how the atonement relates to our healing. On the cross, Jesus was dealing with our sin and our guilt before God. But in so doing, he laid the axe at the root of the tree of sickness, disease, suffering, even death itself. He bore our sicknesses in the sense that he died for the sin that causes all sickness. He carried away our diseases, not that God gave him eczema or heart disease or influenza on the cross, but in that he bore all of God's wrath toward our sin, which is why, uh, why pain and sickness exist in the first place. Like the root of our problem is spiritual and it came with physical consequences. But on the cross, Jesus atoned for our spiritual problem. That too comes with physical consequences. In this way, healing and the atonement, they are definitely related. We would have no hope of healing, of restoration, or resurrection apart from his work on the cross. 
The substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus is the fountainhead from which every blessing we receive flows, physical and spiritual. So does this mean we are entitled to perfect health if we're in Christ? It's hard to use the word entitled because this is all by grace. But by his grace, yes, we are promised perfect health in Christ. The kicker, of course, is not now. Not in this life. And that is step six. Step six, understand the unfolding application of Christ's atonement to us. You need to understand the unfolding application of Christ's atonement to us. There is a difference between atonement accomplished and atonement applied. Jesus fully accomplished redemption on the cross. But in God's plan, its many benefits are not applied to us all at once. And the moment Jesus died on the cross, were you saved and glorified? No, you weren't. Even the moment you came to faith, were you fully saved? No, you're justified, but not yet glorified. There's still more to receive. We still don't possess all of the benefits of his work. And you're not going to in this life. The fullness of his redemptive benefits await the eternal kingdom. Instead, in God's design, he applies the benefits of the atonement to us in stages. And right now, by faith, we experience the spiritual benefits. That includes justification, forgiveness, new birth, reconciliation, adoption into his family, even the indwelling Holy Spirit. These are monumental blessings, but not the totality of our salvation. We're promised even more by grace. That's something we feel every day as our inner man is being renewed, but our outer man is decaying. Though Jesus defeated sin and therefore sickness and death on the cross, guess what? We still sin. We still get sick. We still die. So clearly the application of his work to us is not complete. And so we find ourselves joining creation and doing what? In longing and groaning for the, the finish line, just the totality of our redemption. Just like Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, he says, For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed, with our dwelling from heaven. He's not talking about houses. He's talking about our body. We're longing for our next house. It's the same as Romans 8. If you're still there, we read 20 through 22. What about the next verse? Notice the careful wording in verse 23 on our longing for final redemption. He adds us to creation in verse 23. He says, not only this, but also we ourselves Having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. He does not say the redemption of our soul. That's already happened. We've been given new spirits. We've been born again, but we still are awaiting the redemption of our bodies. This is something 1 Corinthians 15 says will take place at that future resurrection. 
And so for now, we, we just wait. We are freed from the penalty of sin entirely. We are not yet freed from the presence of sin. We still sin. We still get sick. We're still cursed. And we will even taste the first death. But not without hope. For just as Christ rose from the grave, so we too will rise to the eternal life he promised. And that is our real hope. Faith healers are right in seeing some connection between healing and the atonement. But one of their big shortcomings is they have what's known as an over-realized eschatology. Meaning, they take what is promised to us in the age to come, and they try and take it for today. But it doesn't work like that. There is a difference between this age and the age to come. They are right in groaning against the pains of sickness and disease in this world. They are right in seeing Jesus as the answer to all those pains. But they are mistaken in believing we are promised protection and healing from all ills in this life. We are not. Those who claim Christians should never get sick because there's healing in the atonement should also claim Christians should never die because Christ conquered death in the atonement. But as you see, that hope, all these hopes belong to the age to come. And every time a faith healer eventually gets sick, is not healed, and dies, they prove that point. I don't blame them for having the wrong hope or the wrong savior, but they're confused or misled on the fulfillment of these hopes. It's not in this life. Scripture consistently anchors this hope to what? To the return of Christ. To the coming of Christ. Just like we read last week, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. We're waiting for him and with him a new body. For now, let's finish up step seven, last one. Realize every time Jesus healed, he was giving a foretaste of his final salvation. Realize every time Jesus healed someone, he was giving a foretaste of his final salvation. Just as a last step here, I think it'd be good to bring us full circle back to Matthew eight seventeen. By no means can this verse be used to justify healing on demand in this life. But Matthew is drawing out the hope we have of physical restoration through the Messiah's work. And you have all these people suffering, the sick, the paralyzed, the diseased, the demon-possessed. This grieved Jesus. He's seeing how sin has wrecked the world. It filled him with compassion. So he healed them. But did he heal them? To show us today that it is always God's will to heal believers. No. You have to realize the deeper purpose to his whole healing ministry. It was not just to heal people. Realize Jesus did not heal everyone. He actually left some people unhealed in some instances. And don't forget that everybody he healed, they all eventually got sick again and died. And he definitely healed to show compassion on the suffering. But also, he healed people 
to say something about himself and the work he came to do. His purpose for coming. It was to restore all things. Like Calvin observed, quote, He gave sight to the blind in order to show that he is the light of the world. He restored life to the dead to prove that he is the resurrection and the life. End quote. With every healing, he was testifying that he is the one who can restore all things. He can undo all the consequences of sin. With every healing, he was giving a foretaste of this salvation he would procure on the cross. The fullness of which would know sickness no more. And so it is this foretaste that Matthew is highlighting in the healing ministry of Jesus through the touch point of Isaiah 53. In the end, we can ask, you know, what does all this mean for us today? Should we expect healing because of Christ's work? Yes, but in the resurrection, not in the sense that healing or perfect health has been promised to us in this life. Healing and the atonement are indeed intertwined. But don't confuse the first fruits we experience now with the great harvest, which is to come. This should not surprise us because in the Gospels, Jesus never gives us the expectation of good health or prosperity in following him. Just the opposite. I mean, just a few chapters later in Matthew 10, he's going to tell his disciples that as a slave is not above his master, so you too are going to be persecuted, afflicted, and rejected. There is a crown for those who follow Jesus, but as it was for him, the cross comes before the crown. And we're called to take up our own cross and follow him. It's a road marked with suffering. To expect otherwise, like many Pentecostals and faith healers do, to expect perfect health or healing in this age is both unbiblical, but also sets people up for disappointment and disillusionment. And furthermore, it short circuits the greater glory believers can give to God when they suffer, when they get sick, when they're not healed, but they still trust God. Listen, there's nothing wrong with desiring physical healing in this life. We all do. No one wants to get sick. And look, we don't have it as a blanket promise, but we know God still heals people today. And so we pray for all the sick, all the suffering for God to heal them. Absolutely. And when someone is healed, you should give God the glory for that. But other times God squeezes glory out of his people in another way. Think about someone afflicted with illness and they pray, Lord, heal me of this affliction. Remove this thorn in my flesh. Yet God says, no, their affliction is not healed. That sound familiar. Why would God say no? For the same reason he told Paul, no. As he said, my, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. God is glorified when we live in dependence on him. Sometimes when we're made to live in dependence on him. His grace will sustain us. And this is actually through such suffering is how he draws out from us the greatest faith. As you know, when someone is not healed, sometimes faith healers will blame a person's lack of faith. You did not have enough faith to be healed. Your faith was not great enough. 
But I want you to know, healing in the Bible is never the measure of great faith. Rather, when someone gets sick, suffers in pain, and they're not healed, yet they endure, that is great faith, I would argue. When they don't deny the Lord, but cling to him, and they hold on to the hope of glory, that is great faith. The real mark of great faith is not escaping sickness, but enduring it to the glory of God. When someone is healed, that is a very powerful witness of God's power. It is. But when someone is not healed, yet they still love God, trust him, cling to Christ, I would say that is an even more powerful witness of God's power. And then that person gets to know and actually experience One of the most precious verses in the Bible, Romans 8, verse 18, where Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory is coming. This is the glory of the kingdom, glory of a new heavens and a new earth, the glory of creation remade to its former goodness, The glory of our own bodies made new to never again know disease or disaster or death. This is the glory Jesus gave a taste of every time he healed. This is the glory Jesus purchased when he died on the cross. And this is the glory that will be one day revealed to us. So don't shortchange the hope of glory. It is this hope that enables us to endure all sickness and suffering and eventually one day our own death while pressing on in the faith to see that glory. So make this your hope. Make this your prayer. Literally, that the prayer of Philippians 3, 10 through 12, make this yours. Philippians 3, 10 through 12, as Paul says, his desire that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Let us press on in that hope. Let's pray together. Our great God in heaven, this is our hope. Hope we don't deserve, but which you have given to us. You bought for us, paid for it, gave it to us. It's the hope of life, the hope of glory, hope of resurrection, hope of a new body, a new heavens, a new earth, hope of just being with you once again, reconciled fully in your presence, enjoying glory, peace forever. It's all because of Christ. We give him the glory this morning, remembering, thanking him for his work to come, being born of a virgin, living a perfect life, but it was that atoning death on the cross that that purchased all this glory for us. He died, he rose again to pay for our sins. But in, in paying for our sins, he uprooted the tree. It, it, will, it will die. And these first things will pass away. He has won all the victory we ever need in that cross. We submit to your plan and waiting for uh, the fullness of our redemption to be revealed. In the meantime, help us to press on as we look to the prize. We set our mind on things above. We endure. There are many here this morning who are sick, suffering. There's illness all around us all the time. And we do pray for your mercy, your compassion to heal them, 
You're still a God who heals and glorifies yourself in the unexplained healing of someone. There's no medical explanation. You just heal. We give you the glory for that and ask you to heal and show compassion on the suffering. But sometimes you will say no. And even then, I pray they submit and trust you. They don't turn away, but draw nearer, knowing you're, you're their only hope. A new body is their only hope. It's only in Christ. And they cling to this Savior who knew suffering even more. We thank you for the hope that your word gives us, the truth it's filled with. It gives us all we need for life, for godliness, for endurance. And so in this, may we press on. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.